0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Meglena Todorova about her new book, Unequal Under Socialism, Race, Women, and Transnationalism in Bulgaria, which was published by University of Toronto Press in 2021. Welcome, Meglena. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here, and I look forward to discussing your book. So just a little background on Dr. Todorova, she's Associate Professor in Social Justice Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Her research, teaching, and publications are in the areas of education, sexual violence prevention, and women's issues in Canada, the United States, and former socialist countries in Eastern and Central Europe and in the Balkans. Professor Todorova is also director of the Center for Media, Culture, and Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, where her research further supports media literacy education, both locally and globally. In addition, she is lead investigator of a large study exploring the role of cultural differences in sexual violence prevention in higher education, and that is funded by the Government of Canada. So, Meglena, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book?
0: I was uh, born and raised in socialist Bulgaria in the 1960s and, and 70s. But I left the country when com- communism collapsed. Uh, so in 1992, I went to the United States to pursue higher education. I was really dreaming of traveling the world. And I was so eager to learn more about the rest of the world because we couldn't travel during socialism. And I couldn't—I uh, I wasn't accepted to study in a university. So I was a factory worker and I dropped everything. And uh, it was a huge ju- uh, journey for me. So, uh, naturally, I was drawn to disciplines that allowed me to kind of explore the things that uh, 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 I I cared the most. And I was drawn to the discipline of American studies. So, I have a degree in political science, and my specialization is actually uh, the U.S. Constitution and the the political system. And my PhD is in American studies, which uh, uh, I was pursuing in the early 2000s. So as a graduate student in American studies, I I really gained an in-depth knowledge of critical social and cultural theories pertaining to race, uh, gender and difference, uh, which originate in the history of the United States. So de facto, I became a historian of US race relations and developed keen awareness of the ways in which liberalism, capitalism and social differences organize the American experiences. However, I interpreted this knowledge through my lenses of my lived experiences and familiarity with state socialism, Marxism, and a planned economy. So 20 years later, this book captures these interpretations, but also the ways in which my thinking about the intersections and the disjunctures between socialist and capitalist societies evolved over over the years. Parts of the book uh, found uh, place in my doctoral dissertation, which I defended in 2006. But back then, nobody actually cared about the topic. My dissertation was never published. I couldn't find a job as an academic in the US. I went back to Bulgaria. And so uh, I didn't think that I will ever uh, get to publish this stuff. But here we are, 20 years later, this book really, really captures that journey.
1: Well, it's a fascinating book, and I'm so happy you were able to finally publish it. And your journey is also really interesting. And I think it speaks a lot about how the transnational and transnational experiences can really shape our experiences personally, but also our professional experiences, and then how we approach uh, the history of our own societies. Okay, so I'd like to move on to your introduction now. And it's entitled Epistemology of Doubt. Can you elaborate on this uh, Mm -hmm. and explain how it relates to the major questions that guide the book?
0: Mm -hmm. So um, epistemology of doubt captures my own kind of ontological um, state of mind and and, and politics in the sense that uh, I really harbor this deep political doubt about the capacity of both socialism and capitalism to liberate us and especially to create uh, genuinely egalitarian societies uh, that uh, uh, where all women are equal and all people are actually equal. So out of that, I developed what I call a feminist epistemology of doubt, specifically post-socialist feminist epistemology of doubt. And so it comes from the idea that within the same century, uh, places like Bulgaria... Went uh, went through uh, a constitutional being a constitutional monarchy after um, the the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, then in the 1946, it became a communist, a socialist state. Then uh, 30 years later, the whole thing collapsed, and it became a neoliberal uh, kind of capitalist economy and state. These are huge transformations, and so my grandparents, my parents, my own generation. We live through these extraordinary ruptures, but we also live through uh, Marxism, socialism, neoliberalism, a monarchy, a post-colonialism, in the sense that it is experienced in the Balkans as um, the threshold where empires meet, a Soviet empire, an Austro-Hungarian empire, Western empires, and the Ottoman empires, all of which shaped who we are, our cultures, the languages we speak, and the way we perceive politics. That I call an epistemology of doubt. Out of these ruptures, it is the doubt uh, in the capacity of this modern Eurocentric ideological epistems, socialism, Marxism, uh, to uh, and as well as liberalism and capitalism, to really liberate us. So the book is narrating this doubt in order to invite actually conversations that push us forward uh, in invention, that is, uh, gives us ways to transcend this kind of modern ideologies and to stop uh, thinking, especially as it is uh, so common in the West, this investment in Marxist theory, which, you know, as a theoretical paradigm is so prominent in in academia, but also this dreaming that uh, democratic socialism or forms of socialism will liberate us all. My question is, uh, maybe not maybe the history of socialist Bulgaria and the histories of, of state socialism uh, will inspire, especially my colleagues and us in the West to also see uh, the pitfalls and that socialism weave through and unfolded racialization, patriarchy, violence. So my question is, how is this then going to work out in places like uh, a socialist United States or a socialist Canada? I have doubt, but we I also, uh, we keep reading uh, about the, the ability of socialism to capture the imagination of young people, and I totally understand that this is also an epistemology of hope. So um, I'm addressing uh, this kind of uh, tension between hope and doubt in the book.
1: Well, I think certainly the 20th century and even the early 21st century, uh, have demonstrated that the promises of these ideologies, be they the utopian ones of socialism and Marxism uh, or neoliberalism, did not deliver a better world, or at least only delivered a better world for some. Um, and so, as a result, you have a wide range of people who are dissatisfied. Uh, they're dissatisfied with the glaring inequalities, income inequalities, differences in quality of life. Um, And so your book is also about this larger project of interrogating these ideologies and recognizing that in practice, things are always different.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. you captured it. Yep.
1: Okay, so... Your book is focused, uh, obviously, on transnationalism. And so one of the things, uh, one of the parts of the world you're looking at is the global south, uh, also known as the third world. And actually, you argue for the continued use of these terms, second and third world. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about these terms? And, you know, now the fashionable term is global south, but you insist on the continued use of earlier terms, such as third world. So maybe you can give us some insight into why you believe this is important.
0: Um, that's a great question. And it's also another point of tension within uh, uh, East European studies and, and and contemporary social theories, especially post-socialist debates. Uh, uh, yes, I am kind of, I continue to be invested in these terms. Because they are not simply terms, but they are signifiers that are historical, and they capture, in my view, the persisting relationships of power, of an equal power between regions of the world. They also reflect the legacies of the Cold War and... Um, political, uh, global uh, projects. And so for me, as a feminist, as a woman, as a post-socialist subject, yet some, some someone who lives and works in, in, in the so-called West, uh, these terms are full of meaning. Uh, and they gesture to the ways in which uh, women and people in these parts of the world continue not to be equal, or they are not uh, equal in knowledge production. They are not equal in the kinds of studies that we produce, in the research we do. But politically, we are also so unequal within the global economy, within the political debates of the time. And it is interesting that um, uh, the question of racialization and race also goes Uh, to the heart of these uh, signifiers in the sense in which racial theories and racial sciences through colonialism, through uh, uh, projects of uh, of, uh, enlargement and profiting originating in the West, penetrated the rest, and how the rest are still kind of uh, our histories are products of these relationships of power. And so I do also think that women in the so-called second world, women such as myself, and women in former uh, socialist countries in Eastern and Central Europe, the former Soviet Union and the Balkans, also continue to enjoy certain privileges, racial, cultural, as uh, citizens of a European Union, within the global economy and within the, the, the global political order in ways that so-called women of the third world, women in Africa, Latin America, those who are considered non-white and of, of non-European origins do not uh, have these privileges. So the term also captures the ways in which women are still not equal even you know across these uh, global geopolitical locales. And so theoretically, epistemologically and politically, I insist on on the continuous use of these terms.
1: Right, because the terms global south and global north actually obscure the inequalities between these regions and in a way sanitizes the historical relationship between them. Exactly, exactly. And so, and where do you place
0: the Balkans anyway, right? Historically, it was never considered Europe, but it's not global south either, so um, the ambiguity is actually key to understanding parts of the world that also defy uh, uh, kind of, you know, established ways in which uh, knowledge is produced. And so it, it is not East, it is not South, it is not Europe, it is not West. So what is it? And so the terms also are useful to also capture intersections and the overlappings and the uh,
1: and, uh, shades in between. Right, so the nuances and how they are inflected local, exactly. locally, and then the the implications then in the global context, right, or outside yes. of European context. Yes, yes, yeah. This actually gets me to my next question about socialist racism. So you have a chapter that analyzes socialist racism, and I'm wondering if you could tell us how socialist racism is different from, but also similar to the racism we'd see in liberal democracies and capitalist societies.
0: Well, that really hits uh, uh, at the kind of the, the heart of the arguments. But you know, I actually reject the the notion of socialist racism, and instead, using in in the book another signifier, um, I call these processes of racialization and the ways in which uh, uh, race uh, penetrated cultural identities, scientific conversations politics and social relations in the Balkans and in places like Bulgaria, I call this socialist racialization rather than racism. Racialization actually shifts the focus from racism in the ways in which it is defined in um, Western, specifically US-based critical race theories, which is often extended just blindly to the Balkans. I have a problem with this transposition, and uh, I develop a critique of so-called whiteness studies and the ways in which scholars are rushing to interpret Eastern Europe and socialism in terms especially of US-based racism. Racialism or racialization turns attention to the processes by which race became part of the social fabric of a society, but also shines light on the ways in which people in that society also resisted racial discourses and how, uh, race didn't have kind of an easy ride in places like the Balkans, but racialization or socialist race, racialization refers to the ways in which even a socialist society and state negotiated meanings of race that were not native. Used them, however, for political and ideological purposes, but also as signifiers of identification. Simultaneously, however, also rejected fundamental meanings of of racism and race as kind of nurtured and developed within the histories of coloni- Western colonialism or the United States, so um, socialist racialization is is a term that uh, also distinguishes the ways in which racializing in places such as Bulgaria was a way to name. Uh, kind of racial and cultural differences, especially of minorities such as Roma and Muslim minorities in Bulgaria. But socialist racialism was focused on the inclusion of these minorities within the socialist project. And so the violence against these minorities was in the name of socialist inclusion. So because there was a belief in the socialist agenda that and Marxism in general, that all races are equal. What were what was not equal was culture or cultural development. And so these racialized signifiers for the inability, say, of Roma minority to become modern, elevated, to embrace kind of the materiality of uh, of modernity, of socialist modernity, to participate in the socialist project as scholars, as learned people, as workers, as uplifted citizens of the state, was a particular kind of ways of racializing them, dehumanizing them, but for the purposes of exclusion, which is very different from Western racism, where... Race actually, the purpose of race has been to divide and to exclude and to create hierarchies to explain why certain privileges are afforded to white people as superior culturally superior people or those who were perceived as superior versus uh, those who were seen as of lesser value. So there is a fundamental difference and I use socialist racialism, to kind of, you know, refer and to explain the subtlety, but also the fundamental differences between these processes. Both Western racism and socialist racialism produced extraordinary violence, because to include people against their will requires socialist violence, above all eradication or cultural death, robbing certain people of their customs, traditions, memories, histories, Even of their names, all in the name of inclusion. That is what I mean.
1: Right, and this is related to, as you said, the project of socialist modernity, and with regard to gender, trying to promote this idea of a proper Bulgarian uh, socialist woman. Um, But I'd like to ask a little bit about how this played out on the ground. Right, so we're talking about an integrationist, assimilationist policy. Right, make Roma, make Muslims more like the idealized uh, socialist Bulgarian. So, how did this play out on the ground? Can you give examples of some of the policies that were instituted? in order to promote this uh, forced assimilation, essentially.
0: Yes. So that assimilationism, socialist assimilationism, touched not only minority women, but uh, women such as myself who belong to the ethnic majority or the Bulgarian ethnic majority. So socialism really embraced a kind of a feminized uh Um, symbol or ideal of a socialist subject that was raised and racialized and gendered and sexed. And women were a major target of uh, of, uh, making a socialist nation. And so we all had to succumb and to kind of embrace and and come closer uh, to this ideal. And so uh, specifically for minority women, um, Muslim uh, uh, women and Roma women, many of them who were Muslim as well, uh, used to live mostly in their rural areas. And so the socialist authorities often reached out to the homes of these women, literally taking them out of the homes and placing them in the public economy for the purposes of surveillance and re-education minority girls were put also in uh, uh, public and boarding schools supported by the socialist state where they learned arts and crafts and and professional training, but also the Bulgarian language. They learned to dress as European women. Uh, And in uh, the early 1980s, there was even a push to change all of, uh, of Muslim names to replace them with Christian names and Bulgarian ethnic names. This was extraordinary violence. And so the battles of socialism and the battle for building a genuinely uh, progressive and equal society was fought over the bodies, especially of minority women, that violence should not be forgotten. And this is what I also mean by socialist racialism and the ways in which socialism produces violence.
1: Right, and certainly that violence is particularly explicit at the end of socialist rule in Bulgaria when you have forced expulsions, which we'll get to uh, a little later. So could you tell me a little bit about what the proper Bulgarian socialist woman looked like? What was her lifestyle like, her everyday practices, her roles and obligations? Well,
0: I I myself was never a proper socialist woman in that sense. Because that uh, proper woman was um, heterosexual, uh, feminine, teen, preferably tall, married with children. She would be an awarded worker, somebody valued for her work in the factory or the office. She would know her place in the presence of men. And so... Uh, uh, she would not aspire to some kinds of you know political ideals that uh, or a career and a family would come first she would be an activist however as well reading about politics and understanding the ideals of uh, socialism she would be dedicated to the state no question about it a patriot a, a real mother of a nation and identifying with the uh, with the, va- the, the morals and the ideals of socialism. She would aspire to equality. She would be helpful to the rest of society. Um, and uh, she will mother community. And in that se- sense, she will embody uh, the nation. And um, this ideal actually uh, was uh, kind of the measuring rod for uh, both women who belong to the Bulgarian ethnic majority, but also uh, minority uh, women. And so, nonetheless, however, above all, the ideal socialist woman would be closer to not socialist modernity, but Eurocentric modernity, in the sense that she will be a genuinely modern prototype, feminine prototype, somebody who applies her rationality, somebody who understands that uh, the value of, of work, that work humanizes you, that work builds your character, right? And somebody who will embrace the socialist project because she's sophisticated and educated and understands the value of socialism. Few women actually came very, very close to this ideal. Some did, but the majority of Bulgarian women never did. Certainly not my mother. And um, I was a good worker, though. In the I excelled in, in on the factory floor. And uh, for decades, I was also dedicated to socialism. It's part of of the of my education and uh, and upbringing. Uh, and so today. I'm not bashing socialism per se. I'm not bashing the ideal of a good society. I'm equally committed as I was committed back then. I just question and I doubt the capacity of the kind of state socialism that was possible in the 20th century to get us there. And uh, the fact that there are ideals that are guiding this good society is also an occasion for for violence against women. And in that sense, I have no patience for that.
1: Can you um, elaborate on that slightly? Uh, Like, where where were the instances of violence against women? Certainly, you talked about it with respect to the minorities, but just in general, um, you know, non-minority women as well. You know,
0: state socialism was a deeply patriarchal, formation. Women, The liberation of women was seen in the ways in which women were uh, invited and welcomed in the public economy as workers, as well as uh, to a degree in politics, but only if they supported the socialist project. And so uh, women also received a great deal of benefits but these benefits, and this is the thing that seems kind of, you know, a point also of tension between the ways in which women like myself who grew up in this society think of, of the past and Western women who keep praising the achievements of, of, of socialism. But you know what? We had the canteens and the public kitchens and uh, uh, free childcare, But the reason was not to make us equal, but to allow us to spend more time in the factory floor to produce the materiality that would actually modernize Bulgaria. So under the banner of gender equality, women were given more work and the benefits were coming to compensate and to enable more production and the the greater involvement of women. But when you look under the surface, Violence against women, both domestic and in the public in the public sphere, continued. It was rampant. But the socialist state never collected that data. Because if you don't collect data, the issue doesn't exist. But every single woman you ask who, like me, grew up in these kinds of societies, will have stories to tell you about the extraordinary uh, domestic violence and the other forms of violence. Uh, uh, against women. If you're a student to get a good grade, and even if you're an excellent student, uh, right, you have to perform sexual favors to get a basic service. You have to dress in a specific way to pass an exam, to get, you know, a medical exam. The way, uh, you know, the uh, we were touched even in the medical office uh, because everything was controlled by men. Women remained sexualized and sexual objects. And, uh, and they performed you know, both productive and reproductive role taken to a new level. In that sense then, I do not necessarily experience the public empties, the free childcare, the wages, my, uh, women's access to uh, higher education as liberation because it was underlined by extraordinary violence. And I saw that violence every day.
1: Right. And certainly if you don't have legislation regarding domestic violence, right, uh, marital rape, uh, harassment, right? And, and exactly. of course, these things weren't even discussed in the West, uh, really. Exactly. You know, the women weren't mobilizing until you know the late 60s, early 70s. And, so, and that was grassroots, right? You didn't have that space uh, in the context of Bulgaria. But I was going to ask a little bit about it's kind of easy to, to implement new policies, but changing mentalities is particularly different. And and for that, you need a sharing of political power with women and you need the acknowledgement of, uh, you know, men's contribution in the home. And, you know, men have to really understand women as being equals and, and you can't force that. You can't Forcibly change mentalities, and this is why, of course, it was bound to failure. And of course, the assumption underlying it all was also, well, do we really need to change this? I mean, we have the socialist society, so it's as soon as women automatically have wages, um, you know, they're going to be uh, considered equal by their spouses. When in fact, as you said, they had extra burdens as a result uh, and and extra responsibilities. And I think we could talk a lot also about the nuances too. That some women, you know, maybe it was an uh, improvement in their life circumstances because at least now they could get a divorce or they could leave the farm or they could make a life for themselves. So in some cases it's a it's a more complicated picture. And I don't know if we you wanted to continue on this or should we should we go to the next question?
0: you know maybe it's worth also uh probably you meant to ask that question because in one of the chapters where i deal with the economy i also conceptualize the socialist and the public economy also as a space where the state inflicts violence on women so uh minority women and bulgarian ethnic majority women we were all pushed in the in the public economy but we were the surveillance however was also present all the time so the public economy became became the space where women's bodies were regulated how we dressed was also commanded and manipulated our ideological beliefs how we behaved how we dressed and what we thought and actually the public economy was also the space that benefited both uh, 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 majority ethnic men, but also minority men, because it was clear, and it is clear from the historical documents, that Muslim men and Roma men, particularly, also benefited from the from the violent way in which the state took out Romanian Muslim women out of the home and pushed them in into the factories and, and the plants and, and the public economy. Because women would generate higher income and then they would benefit or they will uplift economically and materially their own families. So it it is a profoundly Patriarchal socialist formation that benefited men from uh, uh, minorities and majorities. That is also something that um, produces this kind of the, a totality of violence against women, because socialism is also a controls its economy to uh, in an extraordinary way, and so there is no way for women to go anywhere else. By the way, I. I was remembering recently that um, I'm uh, in my late 50s and uh, I left Bulgaria when I was uh, 26, 27 years old. Um, But while growing up in Bulgaria, I didn't know a single woman, a single woman who was not lawfully employed for wages. Not a single woman. Millions of women, we were all working working and working and working and working. And so uh, socialism was built on the backs of women and women's work. Uh, The the point of violence is that uh, the idea that women will be liberated or say Roma Roma women and other women will be, or indigenous women in Canada and the United States, as is currently the conversation in Canada where I live, that women will be liberated by opening the economy and uh, universities for them and they will get higher wages and they will be liberated is also questionable because the economy is also a space of violence and surveillance and extraction.
1: And there's a, a lot of contextual factors. And you know it relates to their family situation as well, like if they're supporting a spouse, and is the partner exploiting his wife and so many layers to this. But I, I agree that, especially under neoliberal economies, you see exploitation of mm-hmm. workers and not just not just uh, blue collar workers, right? Not just service industry or, you know, the pink collar sector, but also at the level uh, of the professions. Yes. And so I think that's why, you know, your comparative frame is also so important. So can you give us um, some sense of where individuals, particularly women and minorities pushed back and asserted their agency? So you drawn a a lot of insightful oral histories in your work. Mm Um. that's, uh, thank you for this
0: question, because it is also so important to to think of minority and majority women under socialism and in general, not as victims, but also as agents and the makers of their own history. And so i using the book Roma and Muslim Women Autobiographies uh, and Oral Histories as a source and a way to kind of view and understand how Roma and Muslim women experienced the socialist state. These oral histories reveal Roma and Muslim women agency, especially in the active ways in which these women negotiated their subordination by both a patriarchal socialist state and Roma and Muslim men within the communities. So these women embraced the opportunities for education, access to professions provided by uh, socialist authorities, but they also um, understood fully that their so-called emancipation comes at a cost. And the cost was loss of culture, language, identity, uh, and memories. So many of the women found ways to preserve their customs, refused to adopt Christian and Bulgarian names, and participated in, in women's socialist organizations only for the purpose of, of bettering themselves and their families. That is purposeful. Um, these women and their agency was central to the history of Bulgarian socialism because the battle for socialist building was fought over the bodies of these women. Their undressing, uh, modernizing and assimilation signified the power and uh, liberating capacities of Marxism and and socialism. So, Roman Muslim women, however, um, actively challenged uh, and directed these battles in order to preserve uh, their sense of self uh, their families and and their communities even today if you travel to the mountainous regions of bulgaria you will see women who dress in a very peculiar way and so they're keeping part of a kind of a traditional Muslim attire, which is colorful, but they also would wear the dark blue uniforms associated with a socialist worker in the factory. In the dress code itself, we see this legacy of uh, of um, of both power and violence, but also of active uh, agency and of active resistance and a sense of self. And it is visible from the small villages to the large cities. And so uh, the histories of these women are an essential, a fundamental uh, entry point to discussing and understanding the impact of, uh, of socialism and its capacity to actually emancipate women.
1: So you talk about internal Orientalism, uh, specifically as it relates to Muslim women. Can you elaborate on that? Mm-hmm.
0: So I carefully use this concept of internal or internalized Orientalism. The concept is not mine, actually. It was especially constructed by um, American historian uh, Mary Neuberger in her important book from 2011 titled The Orient Within, Muslim Minorities and the Negotiation of Modern Bulgarian Nationhood. I think it is a useful concept uh, that explains to a degree Bulgarian desire to purify the socialist and the post-socialist nation from a Muslim and Oriental elements so it could claim membership in Europe and European civilization, which actually dovetails racial identifications, especially with racial whiteness as well. However, in, in my view, and I use the concept only in a, kind of in a limited uh, way in the book, uh, and I kind of critique it as well, the concept fails to also capture uh, the centrality of politics and the international order and the global forces in the late 19th and early 20th century when the Bulgarian nation state was emerging after five centuries of Ottoman and Muslim domination. So, Bulgarian claims to Europeanness and the racial and civilizational aspects of being part of Europe presented a political claim to self-governance and self-preservation under the imperial and racial hegemony of Western uh, European imperial kind of uh, states, which divided the Balkans into smaller countries, imposed the human and social order of, uh, of, of these countries emerging from the ruins of the Ottoman Empire and determined literally the fate of the Balkans. So racial identifications in socialist Bulgaria also sought to validate socialism as a superior social and economic organization. So, as long as socialism is identified with white bodies and white people, it had a more cachet internationally. So, but there is another problem with this concept of internal orientalism, and it is not so much in its conceptual properties, but in the broad claim uh that uh, by its Western and, and, and American kind of authors and, and, and theorists, um, who uh, claim that all Balkan nationalisms uh, are predicated on such internal Orientalism, that is the strive to uh, kind of move as, far away as possible from things that are non-white or, or associated with uh, orientalism which was despised despised by western europeans in order right to be valued and to be valuable and and uh, to have some control in um, in global politics but such sweeping generalizing Uh, that all Balkan nationalisms, and we are all a product of this internal Orientalism, is also a typical of uh, of white and uh, Western scholars who are gazing at the Balkans and define its racial, cultural, or political properties, but do not reflect on how their own definitions extend the very Oriental gaze that made the Balkans uh, in the first place. And so uh, 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 there is in the sweeping claims in the ways in which Westerners also identify, define, analyze and theorize the Balkans. We also see the, the contemporary manifestations of that same very oriental gaze that produced sense of inferiority and a constant desire in the Balkans right, to prove one's own humanity. Because the Balkans, we know, for the longest have been perceived and continue to be perceived as Western Europe, as not really European, as uh, not really uh, or um, ambiguous people whose, uh, whose identities or, or racial belonging or cultures defy any kind of classification. Therefore, they don't belong anywhere. It is hard not to belong. And so uh, internal Orientalism captures some of um, these kind of the feelings and and the ways of knowing uh, caused by these relationships of power and the power of the Orientalist gaze. But it is also articulated today in the very concept, right, of how we are totally defined by the same Uh, uh, internalization. And that's my critique of the concept. So I embrace the concept, but I also undermine it in a very specific way in the book.
1: Yeah. And I think that's important because you do that with a lot of categories. That's the whole point to critique these ideologies and these epistemologies, because I think, you know, often they're used just in a very uh, non-critical way, as if they're understood uh, universally and, and that way of understanding them is, you know, actually rational, right? Or, um, you know, natural, natural. They're, They're constantly naturalized. And so even
0: the very concept also naturalizes Orientalism. It makes it ordinary and common sense. And that's exactly the problem. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So race does the same thing. Race normalizes things that are actually invented. Uh, you know, as, as, as uh, uh, the kind of the, the pillars of uh, whiteness theory and whiteness studies and uh, in kind of the Western school of thought um, have always uh, 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 claimed white and, and non-white people are not born, they're made.
1: Right, so the constructed nature exactly. of these terms. Exactly, and so are the Balkans and,
0: Certainly. and their, and their oriental in, in, internalized Orientalism.
1: So kind of on a related note, I thought we could move on to chapter four now, which examines the relationship between feminism and internationalism. And in this chapter, you analyze the efforts of Bulgarian feminists, that is state feminists, to forge relationships with feminists in other parts of the world, in particular, the global south or third world. And one of the fascinating and, of course, also kind of depressing things you examine in this chapter is the attention devoted to women in the third world, the global south, and the lack of attention devoted to women minorities in Bulgaria. So the women's magazine and the women's organization essentially uh, ignore minority women in Bulgaria. So they don't really acknowledge their plights, uh, but yet they highlight the plights of these women in the global south or third world. So could you elaborate on that? The disconnect
0: was very apparent to me, even when I was a young woman growing up in Bulgaria. I loved the Genata the, Dnes, the women's magazine, because it had such an international flavor and uh, we weren't allowed to travel. And so I didn't know much about the world. And, you know, back in, in, in under socialism, uh, young people, especially, we would love and embrace and, uh, anything uh, that, you know, was not only Western, but from music, to videos, to magazines. We just wanted to see the world. This was very important to us. So the magazine was a way for young women and, and for women in general to kind of, you know, perceive and see the world because the magazine was full of travelogues and, and writing that described the conditions, the struggles and the lives of, 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 of women in Africa, in Asia, in the United States, in Western Europe, anywhere, in Latin America, anywhere in the world. Of course, the magazine paid special attention to countries uh, that were fighting with colonial powers, especially in Africa, countries such as India or you know, or um, African countries that also aspired and implemented a socialist economic approach or socialism in in in, 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 in their own ways. And so those were Or places like China, Vietnam, although the relationship with China was uh, more ambiguous. But anyway, the women who uh, kind of composed, edited and published the magazine were some of the most influential women in in socialist Bulgaria. They were either married to people in the government or uh, on their own right, they were highly praised um, uh, state Democrats women feminists who were attached to the socialist state. They were deeply invested in Marxist and and, and, and socialist ideology. And so they were practically an extension of the state. In that sense, therefore, their depictions were as colorful and informative and uh, embracing uh, equally women around the world. And by the way, Um, uh, socialism in general, the ideology of socialism was that the races were equal. And so in that sense, the magazine was never racist, to the contrary. It would depict the plight and the struggles and the oppression, especially of of, uh, non-white women, of black women, even black women in the United States. You know, Angela Davis was especially invited to come to Bulgaria and other uh, East European countries in 1971 and 1972. Uh, and her welcoming was one of the, of the greatest uh, women's affairs uh, of the decade. Scores of women, thousands of women rushed to the airport to greet this kind of icon of, uh, of, uh, of, of women's rights and, and anti-racist uh, struggles. And so the magazine embraced those histories very interestingly however the magazine never reached out and never depicted or discussed the plight the oppression and uh uh the 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 lived lives of minority women within the socialist state the magazine completely muted and omitted uh the the stories of of muslim women in bulgaria the stories of uh, of Jewish women, actually not uh, one of the editor was as, as a, was a Jewish woman, but especially of Muslim and, and, and Roma women, these stories never mattered. And then in Bulgaria, we also hosted uh, thousands of, uh, of visitors, as international students, as political activists. Uh, also as migrant workers from Vietnam, Namibia, from Kenya, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, from uh, Botswana, from Latin America, from Venezuela, from Mexico. The Bulgarian state granted scholarships, and so many young people from these kind of emerging post-colonial locales came to Eastern Europe, including Bulgaria, to study Uh, We also educated some of the most uh, visible leaders of the anti-colonial movements in Africa, and in fact, in places like Kenya and other countries. Even the political elites today in these countries are educated in Eastern Europe, some of them even in Bulgaria, in the so-called Marxist ideological schools that uh, provided training in in warfare, in political organizing, and later Bulgaria uh, uh, gifted, but also gave huge loans to uh, so-called developing countries and emerging countries to build their own economies, and many of them also implemented uh, a Bulgarian kind of uh, uh, organizational practice in delivering of childcare, medical care, and schooling. And so we also hosted thousands of workers from Vietnam. Part of their wages were paying back a huge loan that Bulgaria uh, uh, gave to Vietnam during the war with the United States. And so these workers were performing valuable uh, labor in the Bulgarian economy. All of these non-white kind of uh, migrants and and persons who came to Bulgaria, however, were not welcomed. And very often they were also subjected to racialized violence, to prejudice, to uh, exclusion, to marginalizations. For instance, some of uh, the students from Africa wanted to organize in a student union to campaign and to demand better living conditions in the dormitories while they were pursuing degrees in engineering and and, and other other professions. The Bulgarian state squashed the movement, expelled uh, many of the students, used racial epithets and and metaphors and ways literary violent ways. And so, uh, this kind of revealed the double faceness of, uh, of the ideological regime and the ways in which you know it would embrace anything uh, that is friendly to socialism and to the political agenda of the state, but then would despise and marginalize anything that was perceived also as either racialized or and especially non-European, of a lower cultural, historical or epistemological order. And The magazine, the magazine that we loved, the women who professed and who kind of, you know, defended women's rights, who were at the forefront even of the international movements and the international organizing in the United Nations, the people who spoke for us, uh, right, and who were supporting uh, the struggles of of women in the United States and the, the, the movements, the the um, anti-racist movements and the civil rights movements in the United States never addressed the plight of the racialized non-European subjects within the country, never addressed in meaningful ways the plight, the oppression, and the marginalization of Muslim and Roma women, and never spoke against the violence of the socialist state, against these visitors, right, who were crossing or were living in Bulgaria. And for that... They extended a particular kind of racialized agenda that uh, needs a, a deep and thorough analysis. So we learn actually historical lessons from it. As much as the magazine is praised by also actually Western historians and, uh, and um, anthropologists in the United States as a beacon of uh, international uh, organization or, or organizations and how women socialist women were active participants in the most important transnational uh, and international women's movements based on solidarity we need to recognize that there were also there was also a dark uh, history underneath these kinds of uh, you know uh, internationally staged activism and uh, and uh, how, Um, the most important struggles that were internal and the condition of women internally was not addressed.
1: Well, not to excuse these um, exclusions um, and these omissions, because obviously this is highly problematic, but I'm thinking, you know, there's only so much um, discursive space in which these women can operate in. And so they had to kind of... um, you know, take great care, right? Uh, in how they represented, particularly how certain groups in Bulgaria were treated, right? So you can easily claim that you know there's uh, exploitation happening in the global south, especially in countries that are still under colonial domination or are involved in you know uh, overthrowing uh, colonial powers and. You know, you also know that this serves to underscore how Bulgarian women have it so much better, you know, by comparison. But do you think the editors of the women's magazine actually had the discursive space to be critical of how minorities were being treated in Bulgaria? That is, would that have been permissible within the context of socialism? You know, um, domination and hegemony cannot excuse...
0: uh, 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 silence in the face of oppression. They were privileged women. They were sleeping in the same bed with the men who controlled the state. They were very active where their rights and needs had to be addressed. They were at the forefront pressuring the socialist state with important data that was not collected, and they were pressuring the state to provide more childcare, to provide even the kind of, you know, uh, uh, clothes that they wanted, to provide more canteens, to provide the men with uh, spaces within the residential buildings so they're close to families. So they were very active and successful where their needs uh, were concerned. Clearly, they had the agency and, and the power to extend uh, uh, these conversations to other women and to the needs of other women, especially those who were struggling domestically. Look, I grew up in a in a in a family where my mother was working two jobs, and you know, uh, I was twelve when we were still using uh, soap made from the pigskin to uh, do our laundry hard work i grew up with a pair of shoes and you know it's and i ate beans for most of uh, of uh, of my uh, uh childhood so it is difficult to kind of uh, and we also had struggles and needs these needs were never addressed in the magazine because the magazine celebrated the achievements of socialism the women however had a chance to also address the gaps and they did where they were concerned, but not so much for the working class women, for the poor women, for the queer women, the ways in which sex workers were repressed, the ways in which, you know, lesbianism was punished or gay men were punished. The women were silent. And so I cannot simply say, well, you know, there was no way, of course, where there is power, there is always resistance, Foucault taught us right?
1: I agree. I wonder just how much would have been published though would have been allowed by I mean the censors in Bulgaria that's what I'm wondering um, what the magazine. well the the stories that they published
0: still also had some kind of you know um, uh, stories that were challenging the status quo and I believe they had enough power to publish also stories. Uh, And and there is always a way, there is a a, a huge tradition in in Eastern Europe and in in these countries in publishing so-called thick magazines, right? Uh, And producing cultural narratives and discourses of resistance. There is a huge tradition. And so the magazine and the editors uh, had uh, had, um, rich kind of, you know, places and 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 historical examples from where to draw. Instead, they simply produced a colorful magazine that traveled around the world to celebrate the achievements of women and the plight only of women in in, uh, places that were important to the Cold War and international politics. And that's a failure of feminism. That is not the kind of international or transnational feminism that I subscribe to.
1: I fully agree with you. Yeah, I was just kind of pushing it right just playing devil's advocate in a way because I know, you know, it depends on the country too how much discursive space uh, there is for that. Um, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about. Resistance. Uh, and in chapter three, you have a section entitled Life Under Men Sex Work in the Socialist State. Mm-hmm. And you have this story about a sex worker uh, named Pepe. Um, and you talk about how actually she felt that socialism was emancipating for her. So could you mm-hmm. uh, talk about her story and how it fits into your analysis? Mm. Um, Pepe was a prostitute. She
0: was uh, a beautiful woman, and her story was recounted and and recorded by another female journalist at the time who encountered her one morning in the local park in a a small town in uh, in western Bulgaria. And so Pepe was born in a small village in southern Bulgaria, and she described her father as a cold and, and violent man who abused her and her mother, Um, At the age of 16, Pepe met a dashing young man who worked for the Komsomol, the youth organization attached to the Bulgarian Communist Party. So it was that political and and male privilege that involved Pepe in a sexual relationship with the young communist, who got her pregnant, but then beat her up, told her to keep quiet and totally deserted her. Uh, and so she also witnessed the, the beatings of, uh, of, uh, of her own mother by the father. All of this pushed Peppy into sex work, but in a very particular way. Through sex work, Peppy felt that she had, uh, she can take power and control over her life and, and, and body, promising herself to never, ever, depend on men again. So her professionalism as a sex worker was guided by the principles of honest work, but this honest work defied the morality and the kind of collectivism of of, of socialism. So Pepe considered prostitution of uh, a line of work similar to any other trade or professional occupation. And in her view, sex work required skills, such as understanding how to give and get sexual pleasure, practicing safety, providing customer service, financial literacy. She kept uh, an an account book, you know, and, and knew who paid what. She also was a great negotiator, keeping peace with the people's militia and state authorities because sex work was illegal. Pepe took very good care of her body and health, and she would buy only expensive underwear. She would go to the doctor uh, uh, often, and she also studied foreign languages. She was a true professional. But in sex work, she also found genuine emancipation in the form of independence she believed was impossible in the socialist economy and job market. So wages and public employment subjected her to state and, and public control and determine her wages regardless of her talents or contributions. Having a decent or regular job, or what the state considered a decent and, a job, would not save her still from the violence of a patriarchal system of sexual favors that many women were asked to provide as the cost for getting a job, access to particular service, pass a university course, claim a benefit. I kind of addressed also these details. Uh, in an earlier question, but in sex work, Pepe experienced freedom to choose where, when, how, and with whom to work, the cost of her service, and above all, when to stop and to retire. And so she also controlled her finances fully by operating outside the uh, formal banking institutions, uh, uh, outside of the heteronormative uh, and patriarchal marriage institution, and domesticity. And away from the state-controlled banks, so Pepe does practice sex work as, uh, in my view, as a form of resistance to socialism, as both ideological and economic form- formation. Her story is absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, I found her story particularly fascinating, and I'm guessing you know exceptional in, in the context of, of sex work because it's so stigmatized culturally and then also by mm-hmm. the state. But yet she was able to find this space. I'd like to talk a little bit about how women and Roma uh, are used as tropes to mobilize uh, certain constituents. So uh, this brings us, I guess, to, you know, the collapse of uh, state socialism and Mm -hmm. the post-socialist period, but gender continues to be salient and so do minorities. And so how are these uh, instrumentalized, these categories Mm -hmm. are instrumentalized?
0: You know, I'm thinking that I would like to answer this question about mobilizing certain tropes a little bit differently, probably from what uh, the, the the kind of the question probably assumes. You know, I actually am fascinated by the current wave of uh, 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 feminist scholarship produced by. Uh, both white and non-white women in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe, who are speaking publicly uh, and defending Roma rights, uh, Roma women's rights in the Balkans and the rest of Eastern Europe. So um, Western feminist narratives and and political action are uh, are thus mobilized to intervene on behalf of Roma women and men, through uh, research and publications, NGO programs, and uh, European Union women-led initiatives, as well as, you know, uh, kind of national and grassroots organizations in these countries, including Bulgaria. But I feel uneasy about these interventions. It seems to me they enact power relations that erase Roma agency that we discussed uh, uh, previously, Roma's voices. Uh, uh, the aspirations of Roma women themselves. Uh, and they to speak about Roma oppression, but also determine the role of, of Roma liberation. In, in, in a way, then, from the economic uh, uh from, from the position of economic, political, and epistemological privilege, women in the West are becoming spokespersons for minorities they barely know. They're determining the terms of of their oppression, but also the pathway to their liberation. That is a hegemonic kind of feminism that I also resist and, frankly, I also resent. Let me put it differently. Roma women can speak for themselves. And uh, there is a difference between speaking on behalf of, 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 of oppressed Roma and speaking to them. Involving them in the kinds of liberatory practices and epistemological and research and publication practices, especially in Western academia, there is a huge difference. And I feel that we are yet to have this conversation, right? How... We, as feminist scholars uh, and uh, as uh, also you know uh, women in, in, in visible public positions and educators, are mobilizing certain tropes, such as Roma or Roma women and, the, and, and oppression. in in former socialist countries, and what this is doing to our careers and our publication record. And how is this benefiting actually Roma women, Muslim women, and the oppressed in this part of the world? That is a very important conversation, which I hope to address in my next book.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to actually ask you about your next book. I have one more question, then we'll talk about your new project. I just wanted to close with this question about the post-socialist cultural third space mm-hmm. and how it has been expressed in Bulgaria and I also know we didn't really get a chance to talk about masculinity in you know the late 80s and especially mm-hmm. you know post-socialist Bulgaria so if you can kind of tie that in somehow too that would be excellent okay well any
0: part, uh, any uh, uh, a book or, or a story or uh, scholarship about women needs to address the question of masculinity as well. And so uh, I also have felt that we uh, currently, there is kind of a, a great deal of scholarship produced on, on women in former socialist states. So I also, in the book, take up the question of masculinity and the formation of particularly socialist and post-socialist masculinities. And what are the kinds of ingredients of these masculine formations under socialism and and capitalism? Um, Out of there, however, uh, I also developed the idea of a third cultural space in the uh, post-socialist moment. I borrow the concept of third space from postcolonial theorist Homi Bhabha who defines the third space as a cultural space marked by hybridity and fluid and unstable identifications which is kind of you know the opposite of uh, the firm and and uh, kind of strict masculine identifications demanded under socialism, but are also kind of present under capitalism because they are mobilized and they are needed to sustain the economic, political, and ideological projects of both socialism and uh, and capitalism. So the third space is marked instead by hybridity and fluid and and unstable identifications. What we also call in cultural studies the liquidity of being a, a human. It is also a space full of possibilities to reinvent the self and society and to imagine a different future. And this kind of imagination is key, actually, to post-socialism. In fact, I believe that currently in Bulgaria, there is such a third cultural space embodied by a transgender Roma singing artist named Aziz, so anybody can Google Aziz. He's widely popular around the world. He has over 8 million followers, followers in countries from Bulgaria, Germany, Turkey, Pakistan, India, the United States, the UK, Australia, all over the world. So Aziz invented the post-socialist music genre called Chalga, where Muslim, Christian, and kind of Euro-American and socialist and new liberal symbolisms mix in a fascinating interplay of references that invite Bulgarians and in in, in fact post-socialist and post-colonial peoples and and imaginations to be one thing today, but something new and different yesterday and, and tomorrow. Aziz is also a sex symbol and a talented songwriter uh, with, a, with a huge following and um, his presence in this kind of globalized uh, cultural stage or this, the third space highlights the tremendous energies of post-socialism and its global impact. I think as this with his uh, provocative music videos, with the outrageous uh, fashion, with the fact that uh, you know today he is a man tomorrow he is a woman, he's something in between. He uh, married to a man, but he also has a child with a woman, kind of this kind of transgenderism that he embodies. Uh, but the political, cultural and, and, and racial references uh, that are embedded in his, in his art form, have done more for anti-racism in Bulgaria than the special projects funded by the European Union or the kind of new democratic Bulgarian state. I think the third space, uh, which again I borrow from kind of a post-colonial imagery, um, uh, really uh, also allows me to talk about and to think about post-socialism like post-coloniality as something that embodies doubt, but also optimism and incredible hope. And such hope for something better and
1: new is really the premise of my book. And I think that's really important because we either see these kind of triumphalist, very positive narratives about the region or very doom-like uh, portraits. And I think you need to kind of have a balance and, and you have to have a diversity of views, but like hope is very, very important because it's so easy to resign oneself. And so I think that's particularly important. And I'm glad that you elaborated on this. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your book with us. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your current project.
0: Yes. So very briefly. So I started a new book and uh, my uh, working title is uh, Post-Socialism in the University. I think that uh, it's about time that we kind of theorize post-socialism in the sense in which it is uh, an important aspect of knowledge production, both in former socialist countries, but around the world. And so I really, chapter after chapter, I'm examining the impact and the articulations uh, of post-socialism in academia especially in Western academia, and how it organizes new ways of seeing the world, but also how productive it is, but still uh, also undervalued. And I want to challenge that kind of epistemological uh, uh, undervalorization of post-socialism, because I also see that many colleagues and even certain students are struggling to really kind of embrace post-socialism. And very often when you try to articulate a post-socialist point of view, uh, you have to also answer to a demand, but we are still uh, uh, discussing, you know, post-racism and post-colonialism, and why should we care about post-socialism? So my new project is precisely an answer to this question. Why do we need to care?
1: Well, I look forward to reading it because, of course, we do need to care. And so I wish you the best of luck on this project. Um, and I look forward to reading publications that come out of it. And I wish you the best of luck in general.
0: Uh, value the time we spent together and also your insightful questions and how your questions uh, also push me to kind of um, talk about things that maybe are under-discussed in the book or, or even perceive what may be important to a reader such as yourself. So I'm grateful for, for the time and, and for the,
1: the, uh, this, this interview. Thank you. Well, it was my pleasure.